what does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In the year after Linda Moore's murder, near Saxton's River, Vermont, outright panic in the community faded to murky unrest, like a fog that rolls into the valley after a storm. Was it over? Would he strike again? Did he move someplace else? On Saturday, January 10th, 1987, the valley was hit by a massive snowstorm. By Sunday morning, 12 inches of snow blanketed southern Vermont. That Monday, January 12th, Toby Ferris arrived for work at a rest area on the northbound side of I-91 near Hartford, Vermont. He did maintenance at the rest area for the transportation agency. As he went about his duties that day, he noticed a snow-laden green BMW parked perpendicular to the curb on the far side of the building. It was an odd sight, but Toby had seen odder things at the highway rest stop. Yet he or one of his co-workers decided that the car would be in the way for a snowplow to come through, so they decided to have it towed. What Toby Ferris missed beneath the fresh layer of white snow was a halo of blood surrounding the car. It wasn't until Wednesday that Toby went to empty the trash and discovered a ski vest, sweater, and wallet in the dumpster. He didn't notice any blood on the clothing, but he did find a nurse's identification card in the wallet for Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center. It belonged to a woman named Barbara Agnew. You're listening to Dark Valley an investigative series from Crawl Space Media and Glassbox Media. I'm your host, Jennifer Amell. This is episode seven. Valley is possible because you listen. Be an advocate for these cases by rating and reviewing Dark Valley. It really does make a difference. Episodes are released weekly, but if you want to binge the first seven episodes, sign up for a subscription show on Apple Podcasts and get exclusive access to bonus content.
Barbara Agnew was a 39-year-old nurse. Originally from Ottawa and Ontario, Canada, Barbara wound up in New Jersey, where she married Dr. Kenneth Olson in 1974. I found an announcement in the paper, and it described Barbara's wedding dress as, quote, a gown of Marocane crepe, fashioned with cuffed sleeves and high crown collar. Her accessories were a matching scarf and turban, and she wore a corsage of gardenias and stephanotis. Barbara and Kenneth honeymooned in Mont-Tremblant, Quebec, which is coincidentally the town I grew up in. They must have had a ski vacation up there, as it's in the Laurentians, and home to one of the best downhills on the East Coast. Upon moving to Vermont, Barbara and her husband had one son, and eventually divorced. In 1987, she worked part-time at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and trained other nurses on hospital equipment. Back then, being a single woman verging on middle age was a little unorthodox. She and her best friend, Jane Gray North, or Jage, as her friends call her, bonded over dating in their 30s. When I sent Jage an email out of the blue about Barbara, she said that she felt the same horror come over her, like it just happened yesterday. I managed to invite myself over to her daughter Lisa's house one gray spring afternoon. Lisa has an adorable home in a quaint, quintessential Vermont town with a hardware store that's also a bar. Jage is working in the garden when I arrive. Okay, whenever you're ready, say... If, okay. Do you want your, like, full name in this? Or I'm fine. Yeah? yeah okay. <laughs> I think it'll be fine to stop there anyway. I get... I, something comes out of the blue from time to time. Mm. Somebody found me <laughs> another time. Oh, really? <laughs> Who was it? You know, I couldn't tell you. They found my name through the, uh, they found out where I was through the Kerry Point Yacht Club because I'd been on the board of directors there. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and, and I think they were <clears throat> channeling something and, you know, it was a little woo-woo. As Not I recall, right. yeah, it, oh. it was a while ago, you know. Like a psychic? Yeah, something like that, yeah. Hmm. Did anyway. they tell you any interesting No, I don't, you know, and I don't remember. And, you know, you, you're working with an 80-year-old brain. <laughs> I think at the time you thought it was a little, seemed a little kooky, and so you just didn't give it much attention. No, and didn't get followed through. Yeah. 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 That's very unique. Sure, I'm Jage I'm North. Thank you. Yeah. And who are we sitting with today? We're sitting with my daughter, Lisa North, and, um, and you. I met Barbara through Parents Without Partners. We were both divorced and um, on our own, and uh, I found Parents Without Partners in, um, in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And uh, yeah, and we we bonded. Yeah. Plus, she was a skier, so we did some skiing together as well. Anyway, um, yeah, we palled around quite a bit. Yeah. And what drew you to Barbara? Was it just your common bond of having children? And, and you know? well, that was the main thing. But she, Barbara, liked to have fun, and um, and that was. Uh, apparently attractive for me because her, I mean, my kids were grown. You know, Lisa was out of the nest and um, and she had a young boy, Leaf, 
and that she co-parented with her, her ex. And so it's quite different that way. But um, yeah, I think we were both looking to make some new friends and, you know, sure. do things together. And they both love to like dance and yeah. hear music. That's and true. Both very active, sort of socially active. You had a lot of, both of you had a lot of appetite for, um, yeah, being social. And so she was a great partner. Yeah, and she was a great pal. Yeah, yeah. And she had a very vivacious personality. She know? did. Yeah. One thing about Barbara, honestly, she was always late. <laughs> <laughs> It drove me a little crazy. If you were going to meet her for dinner or something, you needed to tell her to come 15 minutes earlier than what you really wanted her to come. <laughs> she was always late. But that was okay. Yeah. And we were both single, you know, so then there was that component of, you know, keeping our eye out for eligible <laughs> bachelors. <laughs> yeah. That January of 1987, Barbara had met Peter an Austrian businessman vacationing in Vermont. An accomplished and avid skier herself, Barbara happily accepted an invitation to ski with Peter at Stratton Mountain that weekend. It wasn't a date, per se, but Jage could tell Barbara was excited. Peter was an excellent skier. So Barbara dropped off her son with her ex-husband for the weekend and drove down to southern Vermont on Saturday, January 10th. Coincidentally, Jage's daughter Lisa, whose house we're sitting in, was also staying at Barbara's apartment in Norwich, Vermont, at an apartment complex called The Ledges, which overlooked the Connecticut River. What happened was she had met this fellow on a plane. She, she did um, training for other nurses. And um, on one of her plane trips, she met this well-known skier. I think he had been an Olympic skier, and um, she was, and he gave her his card, and he was going to be at a ski resort in the southern part of the state, and um, so she decided, when I, of course, egged her on, um, to contact him and meet him for the day to go skiing, and that's and that's what she, and that's what she did. Had you met him before? I hadn't met him. No. But and you're like he's a professional skier, like you got right. in there, Barbara. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's fun, and you know, between between being single and being a really good skier, she was a really good skier. I wasn't so good, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, it's like why not go for it? You know, go down there and go skiing with him. Totally. She said mm-hmm. she was not planning to stay overnight, so when she didn't come back. Right, because we were staying at her apartment, Dalton and I. Right. And so, we, you know, we woke up the next morning and she wasn't, you know, we hadn't heard her come in and she wasn't there. And so that was just sort of like, hmm. Yeah, and then, you know, then in my mind I go, well, you know, maybe she was having such a good time she decided to, to stay another night or a night. And it had snowed heavy that night, heavy, heavy snowstorm that night. (laughs) 
Later that day, Barbara met up with Peter at his condo, and by his account, they skied all day in great conditions. She returned to Peter's condo that evening for dinner, and by 10 p.m., Barbara decided that she better start home. It would take her an hour and a half to drive from Stratton back to Norwich, Vermont. Peter said he tried to get Barbara to stay, not for anything untoward, but because a snowstorm was supposed to roll in. By the time Barbara decided to leave, snowflakes were already falling. Barbara's route back up to Norwich was north up I-91. And then for some unknown reason, she pulled off the highway into a rest area near White River Junction, Vermont. For context, White River Junction is about 30 minutes north of Claremont, New Hampshire, a straight shot up I-91. Yet here's the thing, Barbara was only 10 minutes away from home. Here's Dr. Philpin. Agnew was always a mystery to me for one reason. I want to know why she got off the highway, why she went into the, uh, the rest area. And then once she was in the rest area, why did she drive all the way to the north end of it? There's been much speculation as to why Barbara stopped so close to home. There was, of course, a snowstorm, and this might have forced Barbara off the road. Yet, while quite a bit of snow had fallen by morning, it only would have been a few inches by the time Barbara stopped. Plus, Barbara was Canadian and was used to the high country. She would be very used to driving in the snow. It's still possible she had car trouble, but upon examination of her vehicle, there didn't appear to be anything mechanically wrong. Some say Barbara must have been flagged down by a stranded motorist, but this seems kind of flimsy, as it was at a rest stop, and there were payphones there where someone would be able to call for help. I asked Jage and Lisa about the events of this night. Can you think of why she might have... Pulled over? Pulled over? Oh, her windshield wipers weren't working real well or something. You know, she had a, a BMW, it was older. No? It did seem odd because she was so close to home. Yeah, right? true. So it didn't make a lot... I remember at the time we were trying to piece that together. Like why, when she was... She wouldn't have pulled over like rest. No. You know, or go to the bathroom no. or something like that because she'd already made it as far as she'd made it and she just didn't have much longer to go. Right. So, oh, yeah, it would have to have been something like that that the windshield wipers. Yeah, just that's what I think. Or maybe she needed to or... go to the bathroom really badly and couldn't make it home. This brings me to my personal theory of why Barbara stopped, and I discussed it with Dr. Philpin. Do you want to know my theory? Go ahead. She stopped to use the payphone because she was late getting back to her apartment. Her best friend's daughter was staying at her apartment and was expecting her home at a certain time. All right. That explains getting off the interstate, but it doesn't explain driving to the north end of the... Or, or does it? Is Was there a phone booth up there? I don't know. So I, I went to that rest area and it's no longer rest area it's like for no but I've, I've got pictures from the from the time do you wait a minute hang on one second i wonder if it shows a phone somewhere a few hours later dr philpin sent me an email with a picture attached it was of a payphone 
the message read, quote, Jen, you got it. Outside phone, north end of the rest area, rear. Only phone I remembered was inside. John. Let's dig into this payphone thing a bit. Keep in mind, this is purely speculation. We know the man who attacked Jane asked her if the payphone was working. We also know that Ellen Freed was talking on a payphone, and although it's a bit of a stretch, even Linda Moore had gone inside to answer the phone before her murder. It seems like the Valley Killer would use some variation of the line, is the payphone working, as a ruse to put women at ease, so he could get closer. Additionally, Dr. Philpin has this theory he calls the trap line. This is where, uh, what I used to call the root became the trap line. It's a person who spent a lot of time on the road, um, driving around. Again, that whole issue of vulnerability uh, comes up. Um, looking at locations that he has identified over time. He might find a vulnerable woman. And the trap line is, uh, doesn't have much variation to it. Would be locations like the market where Ellen Freed was using the phone, uh, the market where uh, Jane was attacked. Hitchhikers, of course, that, that's, uh, that's a given. Rest area, and you, you, could, you could trace a map of places and places that would, you would go. But basically, somebody spent a lot of time on the road whether it had to do with his employment or somebody who hunt, hunts a lot and likes to scout out places ahead of time, uh, somebody who fishes, same reason, scout out a lot of places. There's uh, generally in a 50-mile radius. What if this trap line consisted of various payphones along the route? If you think about it, it's a perfect scenario to find women who are alone and distracted. So maybe, just maybe, Barbara had stopped at that rest area because she wanted to use the payphone. She was running late, and there was a bad storm rolling in, and she wanted to let Lisa, who was staying at her house, know she'd be home soon. Yeah, I was by the rest area too. The police allowed me to come. You know, it was a crime scene. Um, just, I just needed to, you know. Um, and of course, I didn't look for a payphone. I didn't look to see if there's one. But I think what was odd was they found her car was was not wasn't pulled into a parking space. And they was kind of off the off the into the grass. What would have been grass, you know, had it not been snowing. You know, and that was kind of strange. I think her skis were missing. I could never stop at that rest area after that. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Jane, Amanda, and myself find the rest area off of I-91. 
at the rest stop where Barbara Agnew was abducted. It's no longer a public rest stop, but a staging area for road construction vehicles. There used to be a building in the middle, which housed restrooms, a payphone, and some vending machines. Now it's only high grasses where the building used to be, and apparently lots of poison ivy, as the road workers warn. Yeah, it was a super small house. It was kind of like quaint Vermont type, you know what I mean, sort of thing. Um, yeah, so I believe that the foundation is still over there. Yeah, so you can actually see where the, the actual building was. Two short access roads loop around. And it was on the rear access road on the north side that Barbara's car was found. What I learned from Dr. Philpin is that this rest area had a payphone on the north side in front of the building. There was also a phone inside the building. And then there was another phone, also on the north side, but to the rear of the building, where Barbara's car was left, perpendicular to the curb. By Wednesday of January 14th, 1987, Toby Ferris, the maintenance worker at this rest stop, finds Barbara's ski jacket and wallet in the dumpster. Simultaneously, Jage contacts Barbara's ex-husband to tell him that she's missing. Kenneth reports Barbara missing to the police that afternoon. As soon as police realize that the north end of the rest stop is a crime scene, they have Barbara's green BMW towed back to reconstruct the events. What they think happened is as follows. Barbara pulled into the rest area and parked at the rear end. There she was accosted by one or more people. A brutal fight ensued which led Barbara to shed blood outside her vehicle and inside it. They think Barbara actually made it back to her car during this struggle, and she attempted to start her engine to drive away. From the snow tracks, it looked like Barbara had pulled forward a few feet, although I'm not sure how they knew this, since the car had been towed previously. But this may be why the car was left at such an odd angle. From there, Barbara was abducted. In the early news articles, police don't comment on how much blood loss there was and if it would have been a fatal amount. They did say that the blood was type A, which matched Barbara's. Likely Barbara was still alive when she was taken away in her abductor's vehicle. Another detail to note is that Barbara had a ski rack on her roof the skis, however, were missing, and police surmised that they were stolen, either by the killer or by someone else who saw the car was abandoned. These skis have never been recovered. Because the scene indicated a violent struggle, police were more quick to assume foul play. A massive air and ground search followed, spanning out from the rest area on I-91. Nothing was found. You're probably already thinking this, but Barbara's attack seems a lot like Jane's. I'm, I've always held Barbara's attack and your attack kind of closely. Me too. Together, because they're so similar. Yeah. So like, you pulled into a place that wasn't necessarily a rest stop, but it was kind of like that. Yeah, it was a parking, parking lot, lot, empty parking lot. Right. 
so did Barbara. And then this guy drove by and just saw you, right? But I stopped to get a soda. Mm -hmm. I had a reason to stop there. Mm -hmm. And then the other part of this is that Barbara fought viciously. Oh, she did. In the same way that you did. Yeah. More than any of the other cases, I find so much similarity between you and Barbara. Oh, exactly. Me too. Really? You think yeah, that too? Yeah, I always did. Yeah. It's also the closest in time to yours too. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't until the spring of 87 that the Agnew family received the news they had been dreading. Barbara Agnew's body was found on March 28, 1987, in Heartland, Vermont. Her body was found by four hikers in a clearing off a rural dirt road called Advent Hill. The body was beneath an apple tree, half-frozen and well-preserved. A large bloodstain was found frozen in the snow seeping from Barbara's body. The death certificate for Barbara Agnew lists the cause of death as, quote, exsanguination due to multiple stab wounds. The apparent interval between onset and death is listed as minutes. So Barbara was likely killed beneath this apple tree. We're here on Advent Hill Road. It's strangely quiet here. Very, very quiet here. We're like hearing every single little raindrop hitting a, hitting a leaf. There's barely any birds. No. Not a single bird. No. A little bit of cricket noise in the distance that I can hear. Yeah. She had no chance to survive up here, to go get help. Yeah. Even if she could have, she yes. had no chance. Son of a bitch knew it. There's a reason he picked this place. You know what? Most likely this would, would have been the place he was taking me. I mean, from all the other sites we've been, it seemed like you were just really focused on on Bernice and Ellen and Eva and where she was abducted, Barbara. You were focused on Barbara, but here you can't help but think about him. It's not that I'm thinking about him, I'm just so angry. Because he's the reason why she was here and she died. You know, in one sense, I've, I'm grateful that I survived. And I, you know, I fought and I, I wasn't brought to a place like this. I'm extremely grateful for that. But I'm still angry with what he did to these other women. It's how he can feel like he can insert himself in anybody's life as he wants. Like he inserted himself in my life. You know, and it's not just about him bringing them up and, and murdering them and leaving them for dead or whatever. It, it's 
It's about how he just stole a life as someone that was living a life and how it has not only taken her life away, but how it, affect, how it has affected the family all these years. I mean, it, it, all the, it, it has affected so many people and given so many people so much pain. This one, this one monster. And it just angers me so much. Right after Barbara was found in the spring of 87, Dr. Philpin spoke to the lead investigator about an interview they conducted with a snowplow driver. Apparently, this snowplow driver's story changed, and it always bothered Dr. Philpin. Miraculously, he still had the small note in his file, and he forwarded it to me. In the margin, he had scribbled, quote, Reluctant plow operator. John had since lost the name of this plow operator. I, 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 I know I have it. I just, I just haven't been able to find it. But I actually found him quoted in a Rutland Daily Herald article from 1987. His name was Richard Harris, and his story went like this. He usually plowed Advent Hill Road for the township. The morning of January 11th, or the morning after Barbara disappeared, Richard arrived on Advent Hill Road at about 3 a.m., the second to the last on his route. This is Richard's story, as told by the Rutland Herald. Quote, There were about eight inches of snow on the ground, and one vehicle had gone up the road before him. He said the tracks were like a Jeep, or some other four-wheel drive. The tracks went up, came within a quarter mile of the apple tree where Agnew was discovered, then pulled into a driveway, turned around, and went back down the hill. He said the tracks stayed in his mind, because he wondered why someone would drive up so difficult a hill on a night like that, only to turn around and drive back down. End quote. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the show. Dr. Philpin says Richard's story changes. Where he previously said 3 a.m., he then corrected it to 4 a.m. when he started plowing Advent Hill Road. He also changed the distance of the driveway, where the tracks turned around, to being right across from the apple tree, where Barbara's body was found. These are minor discrepancies, but worth noting. What jumped out to me was that Richard said, quote, like a jeep. Maybe to the trained eye, you might be able to speculate on the type of vehicle from its tire tracks. But this was a year before Jane's attack, in which she described a wood-paneled jeep pulling into the parking lot of Gamarlo's. Again, a small point, but worth noting. I've since looked up Richard Harris, and it turns out he passed away in 1998, and would have been twice the age of Jane's assailant. So maybe the buck stops there. However, another plow driver caught the attention of the Vermont State Police. Rumors in Heartland widely circulated about a man named Paul Oakes, 
Paul owned a scrapyard, an auto body shop. He drove a tow truck and a snowplow in the winter. Paul has been described to me by many people as a menacing individual, a massive man with arms like tree trunks. He would constantly be in the woods practicing his martial arts. Paul also had a violent temper and a long rap sheet, a simple assault and rape in 1974, a rape attempt in 77, a disorderly conduct in 1988, although before Jane's attack in August. Dr. Philpin had a background in working with violent sex offenders before he started consulting on serial murders. And he had actually had Paul Oakes as a patient. He said Paul was intimidating and recalled one story from the early 80s. Dr. Philpin was out splitting wood in his Vermont residence when Paul dropped by unannounced. There was a large log Dr. Philpin was struggling to split with an axe. Paul walked up the driveway, made some small talk, and then stomped his boot down on the log, splitting it cleanly down the middle. There's a Paul Bunyan joke here somewhere. But Dr. Philpin says he didn't think Paul was trying to intimidate him, merely casually showing his capability of brute force. Paul was considered a suspect in the Agnew case pretty early on. Police learned that Paul was out on the interstate on the night of January 10th, 1987, with his tow truck. This makes sense, due to that nasty winter storm, and he likely had a lot of work pulling vehicles out of the ditches. So that put Paul Oakes in the vicinity of the rest area on I-91, where Barbara was abducted. Dr. Philpin said that police cross-referenced some work logs through the Concord dispatch and found that Paul Oakes had been at the very rest stop. However, not at the time Barbara Agnew was believed to have stopped there. In fact, at that window between 11 and 12 a.m., Paul was called to a completely different area to assist with his tow truck. Again, police were stumped. While it doesn't seem likely that Paul Oakes had anything to do with Barbara Agnew's murder, he was certainly not an innocent man. Years later in 2009, Paul's adult daughter went to the police, saying her father had kidnapped her and threatened her with a gun. By 2010, he was also facing additional felony charges for sexual misconduct. The very day he was due in court, Paul stepped away from a group of friends gathered at his salvage business. He then walked into his garage and shot himself three times in the chest. Paul Oakes was pronounced dead at 1.02 p.m. at the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center in Lebanon. Paul Oakes's name would crop up in another earlier case, and for very bizarre reasons, and we'll get to that in a later episode. Barbara Agnew is considered the last murder in the Connecticut River Valley cases. We all know what happens next. The Valley Killer lays low for more than a year. And then, on August 6th, 1988, he pulls into Gamarlo's parking lot and sees a young Jane Borowski standing by the Pepsi machine. If you've made it this far in the story, you might be wondering why you haven't heard Jane talk about her attack. 
And it's not because Jane is too sensitive, or that she doesn't want to, but because she's told it so often. She's told it to countless journalists, podcasters, TV show hosts, police officers, private investigators, curious neighbors, friends, and family. She's told it so often that she's begun to disassociate herself from the details. It's like a story that happened to someone else. When I heard Jane tell the story of her attack for the first time, it was like I was watching that old episode of Unsolved Mysteries she did in the 90s. Even the language she used was the same. When we began production for Dark Valley, in that motel in Keene, Jane and I decided that she would only tell her story if and when she was in the right emotional space. To really go there. To relive it. To open that door. It was when we were standing in front of that creepy bridge over the Sugar River in Claremont, at the site where Ellen Freed's body was found. Jane was staring out over the river, puffing on her cigarette. Like Ellen didn't know. Eva didn't know. Elizabeth didn't know. Bernice didn't know. I didn't know that there was a possibility that he had done that before. I didn't know what kind of man he was or what kind of monster he turned out to be. I didn't know. Not until he stabbed me. Do you feel ready to talk about your attack? Yeah. Let's do it. Sounds good. I'm noticing you feel kind of raw right now. Yeah. <laughs> Is that okay that we talk about it? Yep. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Next time on Dark Valley, we hear Jane tell the story of her attack in her own words. This concludes the first half of season one. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed it. We're going to take a short break before airing the second half, and the reason for this is because new and rather shocking information has come to my attention and I want to tell you all about it. It's just going to take a little bit more time, so I appreciate your patience. It's going to be worth it. You know the saying, we make a plan, and God laughs. In the meantime, we'll be back next week with an interlude episode where I discuss these cases, my thoughts, my feelings about creating Dark Valley with Crawlspace Media's Tim Polary and Lance Reinsterna. Until next time. Dark Valley is produced, written, and edited by me, Jennifer Amell. It's also made possible by executive producers with Crawlspace Media, Tim Polary and Lance Reinsterna. Follow us on social, at Dark Valley Show. Production assistants include Amanda Bedard and Marianne Stone-White. Show art by Pamela Robinson. Original theme song by Jennifer Paig. 
please see the show notes for additional music credits, courtesy of Pixabay. And if you have a tip for any of these cases, please call the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit at 603-271-2663 or the Vermont State Police Major Crimes Unit at 802-244-8781. Or you can write to us at darkvalleyshow at gmail.com. Until next time.